James. Duncan. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks today. How are you? Parking Stories is a podcast where James and I talk about a topic each week. And this week we're talking about the World Happiness Report. This is a big fancy report with lots of PhDs and lots of research in it. So hopefully there's some validity to this. Um, before we dive into it, I thought I'd ask James, what's more important, money or happiness? Wait, they're the difference? Yeah, we thought that was sort of funny. If you'd ask, <laughs> if you'd ask 15-year-old Duncan, that would be the same thing. But money is happiness, right? And so, yeah, um, would you, what would 15-year-old James have said? I think I had a pretty direct relationship with money at 15 years. Like money equals video games or money... <laughs> Money equals uh, lollies. Like it was, just, it, was, it was a very simple transaction. So like, it, <laughs> um, there was a direct correlation with the the more money, the more happiness yeah. or more pleasure. I might say. Totally. Um, now, if you look at studies, um, they sort of say no money will make you sad, but lots of money won't make you happy. Um, so basically, humans have gone up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, <laughs> um, and so. This is something you talk about almost every week. Um, And so initially, (laughs) it used to be that humans were just worried about psychological needs, so food, water, safety. Uh, But now you're more likely to die from overeating than undereating. You're a thousand times more likely to kill yourself than you are to be killed by someone. And so at the very, if you're very, you know, I don't know, like humanity was very poor, you know, and we're slowly getting wealthier, not not equally, you know, there's some parts that are more wealth than others, but all else equal, we're better than we were, you know, generations ago. Then money stops being able to solve some of the problems. So psychological needs, food, water, warmth, safety, security. Then you start to get into belonging, which is, and friends, intimate relationships, esteem, feeling a sense of prestige and belonging, self-actualization, becoming the best one of, you know, one can be, and then transcendence. And so basically money matters less the higher you go up the pyramid, they say. Um, And so in a lot of places, uh, say the developed world, um, there's researchers that they've done, and they said the crossover point's about sixty thousand US dollars a year. So below that, if you go from forty to sixty, you'll be happier. But if you go from sixty to eighty, you won't necessarily be happier. And um, that's per person. So James has a family of two children and a wife. Um, so that you know, um, probably sixty for all of them is is not so good, but sixty for James might be okay, type thing. <laughs> and a puppy. Let's not forget puppy. Oh, sorry, yeah, puppy. <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, uh, but like, I think it's really. Uh, uh, interesting drawing the um, the comparison between um, what the studies show that you mentioned in the beginning, which was uh, uh, up until a point, money will make you happy. Uh, and I think the researchers found that it was happier. around 60,000. Happier. Um, it'll increase your happiness. And the researchers said that once it goes beyond a certain point, which I think was 60,000, it then has diminishing returns until it flattens off altogether, in which case mm. any increase had no um, noticeable, any increase in money had no in, noticeable increase in happiness from that point on. Um, if you map that over the Maslow's hierarchy, it kind of makes sense because at the very bottom of the hierarchy is the need for safety and survival. Money, as per James, 15-year-old James's rationale, has a very direct relationship with ensuring your survival. Having money equals a home. Having money equals food. Having money equals a bed. But then when I you go, you said you wanted video games and lollies. Having money equals. <laughs> I'm talking about the simplicity of yeah. the transaction. But then when you go up to the next rungs of the hierarchy, it doesn't. It's not so clear what you can do with your money to satisfy that need. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the things that satisfy the higher levels aren't money related. Mm, exactly. Yep. Cool. <laughs> um, so one of the things um, which I first saw from a country called Bhutan, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, um, was that they measured gross national happiness instead of gross national product, which is GDP. Um, so gross national product is kind of the output of a country, or one way to measure output is actually all of the wages that everyone combined together. And you'll see that, is the economy growing? Um, and so on and so forth. Um, but is it more important to be going gross national happiness than gross national product? Mm. Well, so like this is where it's interesting because uh, just about every single um, nation in the world will always hark back to their GDP as a metric for success. Um, and this has been for a number of reasons, but it just... Uh, seem to have been habituated in the sense that anyone would compare their own particular country's progress 
by way of how their GDP is doing. And we're now getting a number of uh, academics and researchers uh, starting to make a little bit of noise in saying that this is not necessarily an ac accurate indicator of just how well a country is doing, and in this particular sense, by way of happiness. Yeah. Cool. So they say that, you know, life is more than just money. And I think we both agree. Um, there's this wonderful quote from Robert Kennedy that I thought I'd read out that I really love. Yet gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education or the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our property or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither wit nor courage, neither wisdom nor learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to country. It measures everything, in short, except that which makes life worth living. I would have to say, to, uh, to add to that, it's the beauty of our poetry, not property. Did I? Uh, <laughs> 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 oh, but yeah, sure, like, we have beautiful properties here as well. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, my property is, is average at best. <laughs> <laughs> Adequate. No, um, yeah. I, I completely agree. And um, this is where I've been hearing... Well, I've been reading on a number of people who are coming out and saying that, you know, there, there's a lot of problems with the GDP in terms of how um, it doesn't accurately capture, you know, all of the things that we would actually want to consider when it comes to is, there, is, is a society actually making progress and what did that progress mean? Mm. Um, so just quickly as a quote, the, the number one rationale for GDP is because what it represents is economic progress. And a lot of people will then say, well, when you um, have growth economically, then you can argue that your society's life, livelihoods is improving. Yeah, um, I think there was a point where the best thing you could do for society was to improve income per capita because it took care of the lower parts of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm. And it mm. depends where you are as a country. So some uh, you know, less or wealthy countries in terms of income per capita, it might be the best thing to focus on that. But it might be in the wealthy countries that maybe it makes more sense to focus on universal health care or, you know, universal you know, education, as an example. Um, mm. So it sort of shifts. So you could take care of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, typically in a hierarchy, and then you sort of move on to the next one. One thing I thought that was really interesting, mm. and so this is voting share in Europe. Um, and so that's typically a more affluent place. What is the percent? What are the things that matter for the existing party to get reelected? So the number one is national happiness. And this is happiness as defined by the thing, the model we're going to go through. Number two was GDP growth rate. So a lot of countries that are like, we need to make sure we're growing the economy. Number three was unemployment. And then number four was inflation. Um, and so GDP growth rate, according to this stats here, is like about two thirds as important as national happiness. And unemployment is about half as important as national happiness. So yeah, um, there are stats that bear this out. So it's not just like, oh, yeah. It, you know, of course, happiness is more important than money. Actual, like, you know, re-electing of politics. As for instance, are they happy with the party? Well, part of that is, you know, whether they get re-elected. And what determines re-election? GDP growth is not the number one. Yeah, so I think um, it's really a good sign that we can see nat national happiness as the number one indicator for a party's political success. Um, but that doesn't discredit GDP and even things like unemployment rate as having a significant influence as well. Uh, because what I mean by that is uh, you just take into consideration one of mankind's natural biases, which is the loss aversion effect. So you think of things like, well, is my government doing things to ensure that I'm not going to have a harder life, like so that I will be able to afford to put food on my plate and a roof over my head? And the reason why governments can so easily uh, dispel the virtues of their, um, you know, of the job that they've done by way of GDP is to give that assurance that your lives are going to be better if we can prove that the economy is growing. Yeah. All right. So I thought I would basically go through the model which the people have made to make up what is happiness. And we'll go through each of the variables. Now, they don't really put like, a, this is the most important variable to least and that's because i think in different countries different things matter a different amount again if you're in like the world's poorest country then improving gdp per capita or income per person is probably much more important than it is in i don't know the developed world so the first mm -hmm. one is life ladder which is how long do you live second one is positive effect which is basically measuring how happy are you 
The next one is negative effect, which is measuring how negative you are. Those are sort of outcomes as opposed to outputs of inputs. Then there is the log of GDP per capita, which is income per capita. Social support. Um, freedom to make life choices. Generosity. And perceptions of corruption. And we'll get into like the definitions of what these things are. Um, but yeah, what are your thoughts or any, any thoughts on this basically, James? Well, there's healthy life expectancy at birth as well. We can't forget that. That's a pretty yeah, important yeah. Uh, metric. I think, um, maybe I'll yes. just go through the definitions of them now. What do you reckon? Sure. Okay, so this is from now. I think GDP per capita is income per capita. Healthy life expectancy is the healthy life expectancy at birth based on data. So, you know, if you're healthy, you're, what are you meant to live to? Social support is or having someone to count on in times of trouble is the national average of binary responses between either zero and one to the question, if you are in trouble, do you have relatives or friends that you can count on to help whenever you need them or not? So that's what social support is. Freedom to make life choices is the average of the responses to, are you satisfied or dissatisfied with your freedom to choose what you would like to do with your life? Generosity is the residual regression of national average responses to the question, have you donated money to a charity in the past month? Corruption perception is the answer to this question. Is corruption widespread throughout the government or not? And is corruption widespread throughout business or not? And then the other sort of final two ones are positive effect, which is measuring answers to these questions. Did you experience the following feelings during a lot of the day yesterday? Um, happiness. Did you smile or laugh a lot? Um, did you feel in the following? Sorry, <laughs> did you experience the following feelings? <laughs> enjoyment. So happiness, smiling, and enjoyment. And then the negative ones are worry. Did you experience worry? Sadness. So those are the sort of two ones. Any mm. question? And sorry, and anger. So, so so worry, sadness, and anger are the negative ones. And then the other ones is happiness, um, enjoyment, and what was the third one? God, I'm not doing well, am I? Laughter. Laughter. There we go. All right. <laughs> Any questions on that, James? Yeah. So um, it's really interesting. Like as you said, when you go into the report uh, itself, it's, there's quite a lot of detail in there, and as you pointed out, it's kind of there is no consistent measure of figuring out which one of those domains has the biggest impact on ensuring um, which country ends up being quote the happiest. Um, and one of the biggest call outs for me was that when you look at the list, the countries that rank within, let's say, the top four, Finland, Denmark, Norway, and Iceland, the, the, the score they gave for freedom were in the single digits, right? Like you can go all the way up to like countries rating 144 um, and there and above. But these countries who are registering as the happiest in the world have single digit um, ratings for their perception on freedom and also their perception on social support. So Finland, who ranked number one on the ladder, gave a two for social support and a five for freedom. Again, not um, forgetting that the, the numbers can go all the way up to 100 and beyond. Hmm. So I think let's just sort of jump into this. So according to this, the happiest countries are or Finland, then Denmark, then Norway, then Iceland, then Netherlands, then Sweden. Um, then Switzerland. Um, so there's a whole lot of Nordic countries in the same place. <laughs> um, and so there might be some sort of cultural things around this. Then New Zealand, Canada, Austria, Australia, Costa Rica. Um, and if you go and you look at the countries with the highest income per capita, the first one is Qatar, then Luxembourg, then Singapore, then the United Arab Emirates, then Kuwait, then Ireland, then Norway is sort of seven. Then, so basically the top six aren't ranking from income per capita sort of in the sort of really, you know, high on the happiness scale. And so I think we sort of talked about this. My articulation of this would be that, you know, you, no money will make you sad, but lots of money won't make you happy. And the higher parts of Maslow's hierarchy of need, belonging and esteem, you know, self-actualization are not taken care of by money alone. Mm. Yeah. So I think that's a really key point out um, to draw out from here is that what we can probably try and do to help um, make GDP relevant is the, uh, we talked about it a, a week or so ago, the loss aversion or risk minimizer versus happiness maximizer. 
and it might just be that the, or, or uh, in this case, the unhappiness minimizer. And it might just be that GDP does serve a utility or utilistic purpose by being an unhappiness minimizer. In, in a sense that like, well, if we can get ourselves to a point where everybody has food on their table and a roof over their head, then we can say we've now gotten to zero. Like there's no, we've, we kind of like gotten to a point where happiness has been, unhappiness has been minimized. But then that doesn't really solve for what makes us happy, which are all of the other um, variables in this particular uh, research, which is what is your social support? What is your perception of freedom and corruption and generosity and etc. Totally. Um, so yeah, it's removing downside, um, but not adding upside. Mm. Uh, yeah. And so one of the things also, if you look at the people who have the highest suicide rates in the world are the most educated and most wealthy. And part of the reason they say for this is that these are the people where if they have a meaning crisis, so they don't have it, you know, or something's wrong, there's nobody for them to point the finger at. So let's say you're in America and you're white, educated, you know, and got, you know, a good job. If you're not happy, you can't say, well, uh, you know, somebody held me down. It's on you. And so unhappiness there, again, might be like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Do I have a purpose? Do I have self-actualization? Do I have good friends? Um, and so then when there's no sort of ability to understand how to solve that problem, i.e., so they say depression is sadness where you don't know what the reason is. Mm. And if you know what the reason, then you're, you're much more able to deal with it. So they're sad, but they're like, well, hang on. I can't blame, you know, the white man who held me down or whatever else it is. I was given all the advantages. Um, so, yeah, the people who have the highest suicide rates are the ones who are the most educated and the most well off. Uh, that's really interesting, um, Duncan. Thanks. You mentioned this in a, but like, no, interesting in the sense that it completely goes against my uh, intuitive um, reasoning on the subject. Like, do you know where you got this this data from, and like, what was the actual study that it was um, based on? I heard it in a podcast. <laughs> um, so yeah, but it was some authoritative person um, who had some study. And so I, I cannot tell you the actual study. I'm sorry. All right. So authoritative in that they had credibility on the Correct. Study. Yeah. Like we have done a study <laughs> and it's not, it's not on like 2bitnews.com. It was on some like, you know, NPR or something where they've got, you know, yeah. a, um, journalistic integrity. Yeah. So like um, it, only because like, for example, um, there has been a study recently that's shown um, conclusively that in Australia, um, among the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community, their suicide rates are significantly higher than any other demographic that they can um, point to. Um, and there's you know, a whole host of obvious reasons uh, mm. to why that is. Um, but I think whether it was context within the actual discussion that was being had, um, there's definitely a lot of um, reason to suggest that maybe what we're seeing is a significant increase in suicide rate in particular demographics because maybe they've moved up the ladder in their social, in their, uh, what's the word, physical well-being without actually addressing their social and their emotional. Um, but yeah, I just think it's a really fascinating um, uh, data point that I would like to dig in at a later time. Perhaps we don't have time now to do mm. that. Yeah. All right, maybe let's move on. I think we've banged the, the GDP per capita drum. The next one was social support. So the question is, if you are in trouble, do you have relatives or friends that you can count on to help you whenever you need them or not? And mm. if you look at the countries that are at the top, Iceland, Finland, Norway, Denmark, <laughs> so those are the people that are the top of the overall rankings, are the ones at the top here. And if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the bottom one psychological needs, um, so physiological, I should say, water, food, warmth. The next one is safety, nobody killing me. The next one above that is belonging and esteem, friendship. So this is maybe a, a, a question asking about, do you have good friends? Mm. And so, you know, the friends are like, you know, fair weather friends who are there if it's all good, but if, if you know, if things aren't going well and then they're like, don't answer your phone call, are they really a friend? So this is like, are you a good friend question? And so one means that you definitely do. And so the average response of somebody in Iceland or Finland is 0.96 or 97 so, or, you know, Norway, i.e. 96% of people are like, yeah, I've got someone I can call. And you can go down to countries, you know, sort of at the bottom of this, where, I don't know, this is at the moment like Central African Republic or, or Syria, and it's at 0. 0.4. Mm. 
Um, so wow. 40%. So that's a lot less. But I think maybe, you know, Syria's in the Civil War, so maybe we should cut off some slack um, at the moment. <laughs> but, but if you're looking at some countries like, I don't know, the United States, it's 0.9 versus 96%. So it's 90%. So it's still there, but it's sort of lower. And one of the things that this isn't measuring, which I've seen a lot of, is number of close friends. So they've seen that, say, since 30 years ago, and these numbers are totally wrong, but it's gone down. I think it was like 3 point something 30 years ago, and now it's like 1.9 is the average number of people that a person in the US would call. So mm-hmm. this is like, do you have anyone? But not just anyone, it's also the number of people that you call. Yeah. All right, um, and that's really interesting. So first of all, I, I just need to clear up something. I've completely butchered my interpretations <laughs> of the list before. Uh, all of the numbers on the Happiness Leagues table are rankings, not scores. So when someone like Finland gets a five for freedom, that means they are the fifth in the world in terms of their free, their sentence oh, freedom. Okay. So just completely <laughs> misread the data, which is... <laughs> James, are like, you perhaps a head of um, business analytics and data at a company in the past? I would neither confirm nor deny. I forgot what it is, but yes, you're business, in- <laughs> no, business intelligence. You were head of yes. business intelligence, right? <laughs> um, and this is a pretty data-driven company. So I would say that your ability to read and create data is very high. This is my, a pretty bad miss. <laughs> my, my credibility has taken a hit right now. Yeah, it's not good. But... Um, do- <laughs> Yeah, but um, but let's but let's look at that for a second, right? So you're talking about um, you know social support as being something really important, but it sits at the middle tier in the hierarchy of needs. So if you look at a country like New Zealand, for example, their social support apparently they rank fifth in the world, but they're only eighth in terms of happiness. And if you look at their GDP, it's twenty sixth. So if you're not taking care of the basic need, which is safety and psychological. Um, which can possibly be explained to an extent by GDP, then maybe something like your social support isn't going to have as much of an impact because maybe you're not thinking about, God, I wish I had someone I could turn to. You're thinking about, God, I wish I had money to put food on the table. Mm. I remember hearing someone say that family is downside life insurance. And I know that's a very <laughs> a sort of you know pessimistic way of looking at things, but like if something goes bad, you know, your family are typically going to be there. And so I think this is another one where it's kind of removing downside. If you've got no money, you can't put a roof over your head or food in your mouth. So you're constant, you know, bad outcome. The next mm. one is, well, if something bad happens and then you're all on your own, you know, that's not pretty good. So you're kind of worrying if anything bad could happen because you're in a bad place. So to me, this is sort of an interesting thing. I think that I have, I remember someone told me when I was 20, you'll never have more friends than you have now. And I looked at them like, uh, I've only ever gotten more friends. Like I have more friends when I was 20 than when I was 15. And so I was like, what are you talking about? And I think it's kind of true. Um, I have much less friends now. Or I mean, I have no people, but like, you know, see. But I think I have much deeper friendships. Mm. And so, for instance, the number of people that I would have called if, you know, the proverbial poo hit the fan back in the day was probably <laughs> my, my blood family. But now, yeah. so for, to me, family are people you have unconditional love for. And, and part of that is people you will be there for in the hard times. You're not going to be like, nah, too difficult. So unconditional love and be there in the hard times. That's kind of my definition of this. And, you know, some of those uh, might be blood family. And I think for me, they are. Um, and some of them are non-blood. So as an example, James, I would consider family. And so I think I sort of have five blood family, um, you know, unconditional love and five non-blood family. Um, and... These are all of them I would call in any reason, uh, and I hope that they would drop whatever they're doing. Um, and so they say you have the ability to, to know everything deeply about 10 people and to know enough about what's going for 150 people. And then after that, you've got to like, you know, use Instagram or whatever, right? And so to me, it's like, yeah, I want to be making sure I'm fostering 10 really good ones. And that means that I, I can't add, if I add another 11th, I have to kick somebody out. Uh, and I don't want to do that. <laughs> um, so... For me, the sort of main lesson was I think I've got much less friends. Like I spend way less time with people beyond the 10. Um, mm. But the, 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 there were only five that I would have called in a bad position when I was 20 and now there's 10. Yeah, uh, it, it, it can be quite confronting when, you know, for someone to hear that when, when you're 20 and you get hit with the realisation that this is your peak friend quantity t- period in your life. But not peak quality. No, no. But, like, but that's not what you don't come to appreciate perhaps until later on, right? Um, you know, and I can probably 
um, uh, argue that when you are at that particular stage in your life, quantity matters more than quality. Because do you like to go to parties? Do you like to go to events? Do you like to always have something going on that was stimulating you and giving you, you know, a lot of enjoyment, so to speak? And when quality suddenly becomes the focus, you get that much more deep, rewarding and engaging relationship. And so it, it kind of flips the switch from a sense of like, well, yeah, I'm not going to have enough time to have all of these people in my lives anymore. But when did I do? We're going to go much deeper and we're going to have a much more rewarding relationship. I would look at it different ways. So when I was 20, I found the world boring. And I've realized in hindsight, it wasn't because the world was boring. It's because I didn't understand the world. So if you don't understand something, it doesn't make sense. Therefore, it's boring. Slowly, I've been learning about the world. And so slowly, some things like I, you know, couldn't understand anything to do with politics. I couldn't understand anything to do with economics. I couldn't understand anything to do with business. I, you know, I couldn't understand anything effectively. <laughs> um, so the only, <laughs> the only topics for talk was banter. And banter is basically talking about nothing. It's kind of Seinfeld. Um, but it's sort of, you know, interesting or, you know, and, and, you know energizing slash engaging slash funny. So the topics upon which I could discuss with someone at 20 were incredibly limited. I hope that I've learned something in the last 15 years. And whereas there was almost never a topic about, you know, a discussion about a topic when I was 20, there's now almost never a discussion not about a topic. So this is James and I, this podcast is us talking, and this is what we normally talk about. It's not like, how's your week been, mate? There might be a little bit of that, like two minutes, but that was like the only topic that we could talk about when we were 20. And so part of the way you fill that out is if you've got lots of people, then you've got 10 minutes of this person, 10 minutes of this person, 10 minutes of this person. Now, 10 minutes isn't even enough to start talking about something. So mm. for me it wasn't possible to have quote-unquote high-quality conversations in the past because I didn't have the ability to talk about anything. Whereas now, I hope I've learned something and I'd much rather spend a deep amount of time with James, you know, an hour, than six people shallow. Yeah. So if you if you think of it another way, there's a, it's almost like there's an inverse relationship from very early stages of your life uh, where making friends is almost second nature. And I have a really uh, good anecdote on this because I just, uh, one of my favorite things is watching my four-year-old as she runs around the playground. Mm. The, just the sheer simplicity of either her going up to another uh, girl or someone else coming up to her and just saying, let's play. And then they go, okay, and they just run off. And then suddenly they're best friends. Mm. Like There's it, just zero filter. And then that go, and so you could probably imagine, like, um, I wouldn't be, um, I wouldn't be so uh, confident to assume that what they're actually do, talking about is idle banter. Like they're engaging in very rich and deep imaginative play. So it's something that I'm, I'm far beyond now. But then when you move to the other side of your life in your thirties, where it is, um, you know, studies have shown that it's very difficult to make friends when you're beyond 30 because people have busy lives, they have their own family, they have all of these other kind of things. But the ones that you are able to cultivate would hopefully be much more uh, rewarding and at a much deeper level that you can then start talking about things beyond the idle banter and beyond uh, you know the, the weekly affairs that you, you partaken in. Yeah, I look at it this way. The canvas upon which I had to paint as a 20-year-old was very narrow. Whereas now it's like a hundred times the size. And so when two people are painting on a, a one square centimeter, you run out of stuff pretty quickly. Now there's way more to do. Um, so I really like linking these questions to Mathos hierarchy of needs. Um, and so the next question I thought we'd jump into was generosity. And it says, have you donated money to a charity in the past month? So we're still at the sort of level, which is level three, belonging and love esteems. So belonging and love needs, God. Um, and so if you have downside removal, do you have somebody there for you when times go bad? But the other side is kind of, are you there helping people? So adding upside. So bad times is, you know, removing downside. Adding upside is, are you helping, you know, the community and other stuff, which is donating. So I think it's still looking after that level, but it's kind of the opposite question, adding upside. Mm. So have you donated to a charity in the last month? It's a proxy for basically how much that's going on, how much belonging and love needs friends, intimate relationships are there. Mm. And I just thought I'd read some numbers for you. Myanmar, that country which is 
very poor and has been supposedly doing ethnic cleansing. They have 85% of people in the last month have donated to a charity. Um, and then you can get down to like, I don't know, halfway through, let's say sort of average, and it's at 31%. So 85% to 31%. It's a huge drop, like huge, huge, huge drop. Um, even sort of number 10 is sort of 60 to 85. Um, so yeah, um, this is an interesting way to sort of think about this. Like how much are you just hoarding money for yourself or are you uh, you know out for the greater good? Mm. Uh, like with, with, with regards to Niamh, I, I'd say it would be interesting to look into that a little bit deeper. I, I would hazard a guess that they're probably not surveying the marauding monks who are going around <laughs> doing, doing much of the... Um, uh, ethnic cleansing, as you put it. But the other uh, interesting observation was that this question is very similar to the very first question you asked me at the start of this podcast, Duncan, which is um, which is more important, money or happiness? Um, and so this question around generosity is suggesting that generosity can only be expressed from a monetary term. So mm. to give you my perspective, no, I haven't donated money in the last month, but I can give... Um, a multitude of examples where I've either donated my time or I've donated my resources or I've donated a number of other different um, you know, assets I have available to me to help someone. Hmm. Yeah, maybe this is a sort of, they need to ask questions ultimately that can work across. So I don't begrudge them as like, have you donated money to a charity? And they're taking it as a proxy and all else equal, I think it's a relatively good one. But you know, if your time, life is made up of time and then time is money. So therefore, how you spend your time is, you know, what are you doing with your life? And so are you spending it, for instance, on yourself? You're just sitting there, you know, buying some fancy handbag and, you know, watching Netflix or are you spending it helping others? And so I think basically, are you giving to others or are you just giving to yourself? And that, that might be a sort of question. And one can be look at it through a money tree perspective. And I think, it's a good question, and one can be looked at it from just giving. It doesn't matter if it's money, it doesn't matter if it's time, it doesn't matter whatever else it is. Um, and so, as an example, um, I work on um, two businesses, and I remember thinking, you know, very much about them, like, you know, this is time and money in the beginning. You know, I could be giving this to a charity, or I could spend this, you know, I could go and work in a, a soup kitchen, or I could take the money that I was investing in the business and give it away, or I could give it to this business. And the goal of the business is to help with, you know, discovery of podcasts uh, and to help, you know, infer the human um, mental, you know, development or basically basically help humanity. And so to me, it was akin to giving to a charity, but it's not a registered charity. Although if anyone would like to donate money, we are taking donations. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shameless plug right there. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, uh, look at it differently. Let's go back to 15-year-old James where... Or like my time was spent quite selfishly, if I were to be, put, um, you know, totally honest. With like me, it was just, not very selfish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but even though there was, um, it was a pursuit in a hedonistic um, sense. Um, but I can say that there were several instances where I was, um, you know, doing things where I would donate my money. Like for I, 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 an immediate example was in two thousand and. Uh, what was it, 2004, I think it was, when there was the, the earthquake uh, and the great floods in, the, in uh, Indonesia. Um, I donated all the money that I had earned over that holiday period um, to Oxfam, I believe it was. So it's a complete inverse relationship again, where I was donating money back then um, because I had a very different relationship with money. Like money was purely expenditure for me. It wasn't something that I had... I needed to support my um, livelihood and that of the rest of my family. Mm. Um, whereas now it's the, it's the opposite. Money is purely utilistic. I, I use it as a means to support myself and my family, but mm. I use my time differently. And mm. I try and figure out how can I enrich the lives of others through the use of my time. Yeah, so I think summary, you used to spend your time on yourself, but your money on others. And now you spend your money on yourself and your time on others. To a small degree. I wouldn't yeah. say absolutely. <laughs> yeah, but like, you know, like, I don't know, 15-year-old Duncan was not really uh, helping others with his time too much. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, I thought we might jump on to the sort of next question, which is perceptions of corruption. And I'll just read mm. out what this is. The question was, is corruption widespread throughout the government or not? Is corruption rights widespread throughout business or not? 
Now, if we go to Maslow's hierarchy again, um, the second top one is called self-actualization, which is achieving one's full potential, including creative activities. So corruption, I would say, is one way of saying you don't get what is deserved. Someone who is corrupt, i.e. pays off somebody else, gets it. So this means that, for instance, you're not able to self-actualize, become your own, you know, reach your potential because it's not a fair, you know, meritocratic society. And so corruption is kind of this, okay, well, let's say we've taken care of, you've got enough, you know, food and water and a roof over your head and you've got some friends, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everything's good. Like now you want to go and start a business or now you want to go and do these things, you know, and, and if you can't do that based on any kind of fairness, the people who, who win, quote unquote, are people who, you know, have bribed people, then you're not going to live a you know, very good life. So this is removing downside from the top part, I think. Mm, yeah. Uh, Corruption is a very interesting one because um, for me, there's two sides to it. Uh, and one has... I good would, corruption, bad corruption. Not kidding. Well, <laughs> corruption done well. But no, they would, what I would consider to be the apparent or the, um, the, vis- the visible corruption, which are obvious things like nepotism, uh, you know, and, and what um, happens in the, the general uh, news cycle of any given day where you have very left-leaning and right-leaning um, news organisations uh, typically... Uh, spinning one particular uh, lens of an event. But then there's the invisible corruption. And what I call, and this isn't necessarily malicious, but it's what I call the systemic or the economic model of corruption, where um, incentives are put in place so that bad actors are actually incentivized to put the weight in their favor, if that makes sense. And... I have absolutely zero background in, in um, uh, political science or um, actual economics or anything like that. So it's like would, everything we talk about. Yeah. But I would argue, well, I would think that the majority of what is perceived corruption would happen um, on the systemic and invisible side as opposed to what we actually can see day to day. Yeah. Um I think it's a pretty obvious one. If if society isn't fair, you're going to be less happy. Um, so mm. the fairer society, the better. Um, this is, I suppose, what people would say is the Western liberal democracies, freedom of speech we talked about a little while ago. So, for instance, if you can't talk your mind, freedom to congregate, if you can't gather together, you know, freedom mm. of the press, so the press can't say, you know, something bad against the government, freedom of markets, so that, you know, you can't sell wherever, you know, the best company wins, et cetera, et cetera. And so... I think that you've seen the countries that have had the strongest growth and the happiest people on average have mm. been able to have a meritocratic outcome. Now, no one's saying you shouldn't have uh, you know, affirmative action, you shouldn't have a strong social safety net, you shouldn't have the veil of ignorance. I think you should have all of those things, but you can kind of have them if you have you know, people who are you know, able to strive. So, so those things are possible from a prosperous society, and a prosperous society is possible because of a lack of corruption. Mm. Um, so to me, this is a pretty obvious one. Um, so you need to have government that is, you know, fair and reasonable. <laughs> you need to have courts that are fair and reasonable, etc. And so um, the more of this you can have, the better. Yeah. But you also have um, groups like, um, you know, the very far or the extreme left or the postmodernists who, uh, would, who view the system itself as being corrupt. So what they would argue, at least what my understanding of what they would argue, is that um, capitalism presents a hierarchy where those who rise to the top are more successful and there are those who are um, displaced at the bottom. But their view of this hierarchy is based on a premise of power rather than competence. And so uh, by saying that it's based on power, those who are at the top who have power become more powerful because they have power. That's a corrupt model. Um, And so it's quite difficult to try and tease out what's really happening here if you think the model itself is corrupt rather than trying to argue well maybe we can see well there are hierarchies in all things in nature or everywhere in nature Um, capitalism is just one of those things it's not the only hierarchical model and of course there are bad actors in that but it might more it might actually lend more credence to saying that there is a competence factor here that plays into it much more but they wouldn't typically agree with that hmm so the next question is freedom to make life choices um 
are you satisfied or dissatisfied with your freedom to choose what you want to do with your life? And maybe this is kind of like corruption is removing downside and this is adding upside. It's kind of like how constricting is society? Um, so, I don't know, in a full-on socialist you know, world, you, know, you don't get to choose what you're getting paid, you don't get to choose what job you're doing, etc. Versus a full-on capitalism, you get to just choose these things. But sometimes, you know, they say markets without rules are theft. Um, and people, you know, just go around lining their own pockets at the expense of other people. Mm. Um, so, I think there's a really interesting dichotomy um, you cannot have individual liberty, aka freedom, if you don't have collective liberty. So, for instance, mm. if you don't have, I don't know, a functioning government which has the rule of law, etc., they say the natural state of humanity is civil war. So then you just have marauding tribes, kind of like the warlords in certain parts, you know, when there was parts of the Middle East and the Arab Spring and, you know, the, the government sort of fell, it was kind of like different warlords took over different factions and they had their own sort of, you know, law going on. Mm. And so... If you have a complete individual freedom, that means that there's no collective liberty. So you kind of need to have this balance of we need to have a strong government. Um, otherwise, you know, someone's going to come down the street and kill me and no one's going to do anything about it. Um, and so it's basically like you have this balance of collective liberty versus individual liberty. And this is, I think, a Will Durant quote, who's just a freak show, in my opinion. It's like, which, which side do you lean towards? Collective liberty? or individual liberty, if you're going to go, because it's a sort of line. He's like, well, with individual liberty, you have too much, you have total chaos. And with collective liberty, you have too much, you have slight dampening of new business creation. He's like, I know which side I would err on the side of. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I think people in like a, a you know, successful Western liberal democracy, you know, Australia, the US, UK, etc., kind of think individual liberty, individual liberty, because they have such strong collective liberty. Um, mm. And so, yeah. I really like the, the notion of collective versus individual liberty. I would uh, posit that maybe his sunk premise of too much collective liberty would just end up having slightly less new business. Oh, I think I made that, but, you know, ultimate is the, the I don't know, whatever, China yeah, or something, um, yeah. But it's, it's, it's the, the age-old left versus right, where um, the more conservative would be, um, you know, ringing the bells of individual liberty and uh, less government oversight. Whereas, um, you know, those who are more liberal would want to, you know, have this more of a collective sense, believing that, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats, so to speak. Mm. Um, one of the things that I heard recently, which I really like, is that the role, so if the natural state of people is civil war, the key role of government is to have it so that people who have disagreements will not end up in violence. So they're happy to have different points of view and society remains civil. So Throwing words instead of rocks. Correct. That's Sigmund Freud, yeah. Right. Um, and so it's not like, oh, we need to make sure that we have the healthcare policy that I want. It's to make sure that we can have different views on healthcare and not go out and want to stab each other. Um, it's to make sure we can have different views in, in immigration and not go out and want to you know, riot in the streets. And so... The, the, the primary role of government is to ensure that different parties in society can have disagreements and that they can have, you know, 51% of people vote for one thing but not take 100% of the spoils. So you can have a majority, have, you know, have a view and it's not necessarily impinge upon the, you know, minority to the point where the minority rebel. Um, so, yeah, I think you, you want freedom of choices but you also don't want complete freedom because complete freedom, like, will end up in anarchy, basically. Mm. This might sound a bit um, macabre, um, but I am sometimes completely astounded that we are all, we have managed to found a point in which we can all live harmoniously and that we're all not, not all just going around killing each other still. Not all of us, <laughs> unfortunately. Well, in, more than in, in the past, in, yeah. Uh, yeah, so more than ever than in the past, yes, and in more civil societies, I should say, as a, um, as a general point. Um, and so... It, and I and so looking into it, I don't think it's because we have become more civil ourselves as individuals. You know, like genetically, us being born today, we're pretty much the same human beings that um, you know the the tribes were forty thousand years ago. But as a society, we presented each other, ourselves with a solution that the majority of people. Would like that. My my interpretation is as a society, we presented a solution that the majority of people accept as a way to ensure that not only themselves but as many people as possible can have the best life possible. 
So this suggests that it's really a social contract and not like, you know, the hard and fast rule of law that's keeping us together this way, um, which I find incredibly interesting because what happened, what would happen when that social contract no longer holds any um, credibility? Well, I think the social contract's been getting stronger and stronger. <laughs> um, so this is like um, part of, you know, what gives political parties legitimacy. And one of the sort of theories is social contract. Mm. Um, but I think you could argue, we might have said in a previous podcast, that the US is in the worst state it's been since Nixon. Um, and what are they doing? In what way, do- though? Uh, like social cohesion, you know, all of that stuff, you know, freedom to make choices, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> are they building walls to keep people in? No, they're building walls to keep people out. What were they doing in you know, East Berlin? Keeping a wall to keep people in. Um, you know, what's happening? You know, what are all the wealthy people in China doing? Getting their money out and putting it in places like Australia and Canada. Um, now, I'm not one saying that, I don't know, America is perfect and can't be improved. But given the sort of long span of history, it's pretty bloody good <laughs> um, versus what it was. And I hope it will improve more into the future. Um, but well, yeah. yeah, you have a lot of individual liberty in the US. Mm. Um, perhaps the most of, you know, any country. Um, and there's parts of that that are good and parts that are not good. You know, the people walking around saying things, you know, which I don't think everyone agrees with, but yeah, we've already had the freedom of speech one. So I, I think all else equal, yeah, you want to have yeah. more ability to determine your life and to figure out where things should go. I, I agree with all those points. I think um, a, a, a sense of optics is important to keep in consideration here. Like, let's not forget that um, the US presents itself as the best land-based solution for much of the southern American countries for people to um, escape to. It's not because they ask themselves, where in the world is the best place for me to go to have the most personal liberty? And they decided to settle on the USA. Like, I'm pretty sure if they had the option available to them, they might want to go to Norway or Switzerland or somewhere else in the top of the happiness index. But that's what is available to them. Um, and the other you know, important statistic that was just shocking when I read it was that the majority of illegal immigration does not happen by border um, crossing the border, but by people flying into the airport and just not leaving. <laughs> yeah. um, and so you know, these the, the ideas that walls need to be built to keep people out is misguided on those two fronts. Um, but I, I definitely still, you know, agree to the point that, you know, as as many troubles that a, you know, a country like America is having, um, its social contract is still very strong because of based on those two ideas of personal and group liberties. Mm. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to the sort of last two, which is positive effect and negative effect. And so positive effect is happiness, mm. laughter and enjoyment. And negative effect is worry, sadness and anger. Um, now, I would say that these are outputs, not inputs. And so, if we sort of go back to Maslow's hierarchy again, um, one of the things we haven't sort of talked about is, okay, well, what gives you esteem, self-actualization, and transcendence? Uh, I'd say one part of that is a purpose. So, people say there's a crisis of meaning, uh, you know, meaning, purpose, I'm sort of using interchangeably. And I think this is a luxury that we get to have because we now need to no longer worry about whether we're going to have a food over a roof over our head or food in our mouth, you know, or mm. someone's going to come along and kill us. And so we now get mm. to worry about the higher parts. And if you have, um, you know, got purpose and meaning, you have esteem and self-actualization and transcendence. And so I was sort of talking about well, where can purpose come from? Um, and so this is um, a sort of blog that I'm mid-writing that will come out soon. <laughs> um, you can be born with some innate calling, which you have a passion for. Um, I don't know, food um, or something and or, you know, making art um, or whatever it is. And so if you work on your passion, this is standard job advice, work on what you're passionate about. So passion times work equals happy. I would posit another thing. Meaning times work equals passion plus happy. And so that means you get more. So meaning, I think one of the easiest hacks for meanings, now there's many ways for meaning, is to help make the world better. That could be by raising children. That could be by building an, an education company. That could be by making sweet coffees that I'm really happy that I, you know, spent five dollars on this morning. Um, but <laughs> five dollars. Yeah, I know it's getting expensive. Um, meaning um, is basically one of the hacks for that. Now, not the only one is making the world better. And so, what I've found is that if you make the world better and you work on it, then you slowly become passionate about something, and you slowly, you know, if you're making progress, become more and more passionate over time. 
So passion effectively is something that you can cultivate, that you can mm. grow. It's not something that you're born with an innate calling, um, which is good because, you know, I think this means that most people can sort of hopefully, you know, be able to possibly find it. And the, and the other part, I'll, I'll pause there. What do you think, Jason? Uh, so I really like um, your take on this because it, it looks at passion as an input as well as an output. Yeah. Um, so it's not just like one linear um, formula that you have to prescribe to. Um, case in point, many people will probably say, well, I don't know what my passion is. I have multiple things I'm interested in. What way do I go? Yeah. Um, or other people might think, well, I don't have a passion. Yeah. Does that mean that I'm screwed? Um, <laughs> yeah, like, game over. Don't bother going forward. End it just, now. Yeah, just, yeah. just cast yourself off the yeah. without a rope. You're done. Yeah. Um, but so, so this is a you know um, a two way street, so to speak, um, and that puts you know more power in your hands in in determining. Well, if you can't figure out what you're passionate about, then you know just keep looking around until you find something that you believe to be meaningful. You know. Mm. Um, and you know, I could never have known that I would be passionate about parenting because I hadn't been a parent until I was one. Um, and, you know, spoiler alert, you, you can't really put the toothpaste back in the tube once you've gone through <laughs> it. <laughs> but um, it was always something that I believed was a meaningful um, endeavor. And sure enough, as I've just um, gone down this path, my passion for it has only uh, exponentially increased every single day. That's wonderful to hear. I mean, from, let's say, I think, non-children perspective, let's say money work perspective, mm. has you found this to be sort of fair, like meaning, um, I would say that your job currently with BCG is helping make the world better. Now, maybe it's not somewhat less, I don't know, tangible in other places, but meaning times work can lead to passion plus happy. Do you think that's a fair, you know, characterization for yourself? Right. So, like, I mean, meaningful work um, and getting paid for it is kind of the definition of vocation, I would have thought. Um and so there's, an, there's a whole host of other things that can factor in there. Like, as uh, with all other ex externalities considered, um, yes, I believe meaningful work would lead to, you know, you having a passion for it. But I can think of many different uh, other variables that would play in there that while you might believe what you're doing is meaningful, you might still be unhappy because you either hate your job or you hate the people you work with or you, you know, a, a number of other different factors. So I think where, you know, the, 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 the rubber hits the road with regards to meaning and passion is this sense of engagement. Like you, you got to find it meaningful. I agree with that. But like how engaged in your work are you so that you can then, you know, have feel passionately about it as well? Yeah. Um, so my personal experience in working with a lot of people um, is that you can start off like it, it doesn't matter what improving the world is like seriously just anything uh, and then if you're making progress on it you slowly become more interested in it and more passionate about it and then it becomes more meaningful and you're more passionate this nice beautiful positive feedback loop comes mm. now I think you need to have a good life in, in many areas so I don't know one thing I have is like I've got um, you know five days a week of work one day a week of play and one day a week of rest um, so I don't think, you, you know, you want to have 100% of your week being work. But for a lot of people, the majority of their working hours, waking hours would be working. And so having that part be just a real drain on your life, I think is going to be a way for you to have this part of the equation, which is like positive effect and negative effect, not be good. Mm. And so I believe, and you don't have to have some innate calling that this is what I was put on earth to do. You just go and find anything that's helped make the world better. Sometimes it isn't like, I don't know, pushing fast food or something may not necessarily, um, you know, be something the world needs. So there definitely are yeah. businesses that don't make the world better. Um, but there are a lot that do. And don't, it's, not, it's this slow burn. And, you know, and, and then you sort of realize, oh my God, I like this. Oh my God, I really like this. And then you'll catch yourself out, you know, catch up with a friend and you're like going, oh my God, this blah, blah, blah. And you're like, when did that happen? Um, so I'm very passionate about, you know, Ed Rollo and our channel, mm. but didn't start that way. It was like, oh, this is something that maybe could be interesting. And then slowly it's sort of grown and grown. And now it's like some raging passion <laughs> going down. <laughs> um, so for me, what I, what really helps with this particular subject is I, I, I want to read, um, an excerpt from a letter written by 
um, a young fellow named Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> now, I don't know if, if, if you're aware of who this person is, and he might not be the individual by which you want to base the level of happiness in your own life against, but um, some, a friend of his wrote to him asking, what is the purpose to life? And I found his re response quite poignant and beautiful. So mm -hmm. I just want to read it out here. So as I see it then, the formula runs something like this. A man must choose a path which will let his abilities function at maximum efficiency toward the gratification of his desires. In doing this, he is fulfilling a need, giving himself identity by functioning in a set pattern towards a set goal. He avoids frustrating his potential, which is choosing a path which puts no limit on his self-development. And he avoids the terror of seeing his goal wilt or lose its charm as he draws closer to it. Rather than bending himself to meet the demands of what he seeks, he has bent his goal to conform to his own abilities and desires. Hmm. But beware of looking for goals. Look for a way of life. Decide how you want to live and then see what you can do to make a living within that way of life. Hmm. When you say, I don't know where to look, I don't know what to look for. And there's the crux. It is worth giving up what I have to look for for something better. I don't know, is it? Who can make that decision but you? But even by deciding to look, you go a long way towards making the choice. I like that. Um, we'll mm. put a link in the um, show notes. We're also fast approaching one hour. Um, so I'm going to do summary for me and James can have a bit of time to think about this. Um, is happiness something which, you know, you can sort of, I don't know, aim for? I think happiness is typically a second order outcome. Uh, so having good friends then allows you to be having having a, a good job that you enjoy allows you to be happy. You don't do happy first. It's kind of a second thing. Having said, which I typically do six days a week of selflessness and one day a week of selfishness <laughs> or hedonism. And so on that one day a week, I'm, it's like actually is sort of happiness is the first goal. Like I'm going to, I don't know, eat some really unhealthy food and I'm going to enjoy the hell out of it. Whereas if I ate that food on the other days, I would actually not enjoy it. So the story's different. I'm like, no, I should try to not give myself a heart attack. Um, whereas this other one, it's like, I don't care. It's so yummy. And so on the one day a week where I you know, have a different rule, selfishness, hedonism, I'm like, I'm enjoying this. But if I ate that food on the other days a week, I would be like, oh, God, no, yuck. So for me, um, yeah. And I think that Maslow's hierarchy of needs is such a good thing. <laughs> Maslow, um, um, these questions actually do a decent job of kind of addressing the different layers on the pyramid. And I think that they why sort of seem like, why did they pick those questions? Um, there's also statistically relevant, um, you know, uh, outcomes, which they've measured between this happiness measure and, for instance, governments getting re-elected and other things. Um, so for me, these are good, uh, you know, questions. Um, so I would basically be trying to think about, do you have enough really good friends? And I think you kind of want 10 people in your life. Um, and it's about quality then. Um, and you slowly foster it. And then over time, you know, the, my definition of family, which is unconditional love, and you would be there for them in the hard times. Um, is So unconditional love is like, doesn't matter what they do to you, you're not going to tell them to go F themselves. And there in the hard times is, okay, well, they need me right now. Am I going to drop what I'm doing? Or am I just going to be like, nah, fuck it, too busy. Um, so, Yeah. Have good friends um, and, and invest in the quality, which means talking about nothing, but also talking about something. Um, and then look after the rest of these things. I don't think I need to crap on any longer. James, up to you. <laughs> so happiness is like an orgasm. No. <laughs> the more you think about it, the more it goes away. <laughs> to quote the wise philosopher Tim Minchin there. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think this has been a really interesting exploration, starting out with the happiness index or the, the, the World Happiness Report where we're trying to understand at a macro level what it is that um, you know, we can do to try and understand what makes a particular country more happier than another. More happier. More happier. Happier. More happierest. More happier. Let's start off with some quality grammar. I have the I worst know th grammar. I, ha here, yeah. I have the best words. I have the best words, yeah. yeah. Um, so for a long time... Um, you know, governments and even academics have kind of been touting, got it, um, G <laughs> GDP as a, as a major uh, predictor of happiness in, uh, in, within certain uh, civilizations. Uh, but to also quote Albert Einstein, not everything that counts can be counted and not everything that can be counted counts. 
And we're moving towards this uh, realization and this growing awareness that, well, GDP might explain one particular factor of happiness, but it certainly doesn't account for all of it. And I like what we um, uh, like explored in our discussion today, where it might actually serve a utilistic point to an extent where it can serve the first two levels of the hierarchical um, pyramid, where, well, GDP is important from an economic perspective so that we can ensure that our nation is growing and that people can actually be earning enough money to put food on the table and the roof over their heads. But then it gets more complicated where we start thinking about, well, what can we do to maximize our happiness, right? Survival is tick, <laughs> got that sorted. Um, that's not enough. And so we could start to look at other areas such as what they've um, tried to quantify here, such as sense of freedom, sense of social support, uh, um, livelihood, and all of those other kind of metrics that can then play into it. And we can think about it in our own lives as well. Can I ask myself, do I have um, a number of people that I could call on in a, moment, in a crisis? And think about what I would want to do to change that if it comes back with a um, non-reassuring answer. <coughs> Do I feel like that I put the, all the things in place so that I am physically healthy? You know, like your health is your first wealth. <laughs> if you're not healthy, then your life is going to be very difficult for you to find happiness in. Do I feel like I have rich, uh, in, enduring relationships? Uh, and then finally, on top of all of that, do I feel like I'm in a position where I can actually start giving back, being more generous, whether it's with my money or with my time? Yay. All right. We're over time. Um, thanks, James. Speak to you All soon. Right, Speak to you later.